Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 37 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a Rust Belt recruiting production. I am your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Sam Friedman, brand director of Chagrin Valley Soap and Salve. I hope I pronounced that right. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, The L is technically silent, but most people do say salve, but salve works too. Well, I'm glad that we have the brand director on the episode to correct me. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Sam, how we doing, man? Thanks for coming on. Excellent. I'm happy to be here today. Thank you. Um, so we usually don't start off episodes like this, but I think with your background, the different industries you've worked in, it would probably be beneficial to provide your uh, the two to three minute Sam Friedman story and how you ended up doing what you're doing. Sure. Very briefly, uh, I was born and raised in Cleveland. I I lived in Cleveland. I went to uh, elementary school and high school in Cleveland. I went to The Ohio State University. And after graduating with degrees in religious studies and theater, uh, I founded the theater company in 1997, uh, the actual reality theater company originally in Columbus. And then we moved up to Cleveland. Uh, And from uh, 1997 to 2001, we produced uh, theatrical productions mostly rock music oriented, a little bit controversial in subject, and um, rented out pretty cool spaces here in Cleveland doing some avant theater. In 2001, uh, the company broke apart. Most of the folks went up to New York. And so I became a teacher. Uh, And I worked in uh, local suburban area schools in the Cleveland area, um, teaching uh, arts, computer technology, and religion classes. Uh, which led me to have an early midlife crisis uh, where I felt a little stale in my life. And so I packed up my life and I moved myself to Europe um, where I lived in Madrid, Spain. Uh, I worked as uh, an English language liaison to the Spanish government. uh, And I worked in the defense ministry and the president's uh, cabinet, helping diplomats with their speeches when they had to travel. Um, And, uh, in 2007, I got a phone call from my mother um, asking if I would come home to help her <laughs> in her business. And uh, I had been there along here and there, but in 2002, she began that business and was doing it as a side hustle until she decided she wanted to quit her job and do it full time. And that kind of involved calling her eldest son and asking for assistance. And so that's when my story with the Chagrin Valley soap and entrepreneurialism began. What did teaching technology in 2002 to 2000, what was it, 01 to 04 that you said you were teaching? Yeah. What did, so you taught religion, technology, and what was the third one? Uh, Theater arts. Theater arts. What was the technology class? Like, what were you teaching? So that was a fascinating time in technology because uh, most teachers in a lot of schools, at least then, were older, uh, especially the private school sector. And here I was just out of college. Uh, and it was a time when technology, the internet was, was really burgeoning. And so I came into a school that I had gone to for a few years in elementary that <clears throat> at that time had no computers and now had a dusty little old lab with some IBMs 
the kids were still using hard uh, three and a half by five discs. And they were, there was very little happening, to be honest. They were typing homework assignments at home. And then the lab, no one was even sure what it was a room of dusty computers. So I tried to get the school to understand that some basic investment in a real computer lab was necessary, that the computer courses were important for the kids to be literate in online use, in printing technology, in basics of things like Mac, Paint, and Word. And uh, so we first thing we were able to do was outfit the, the the place with 15 new Mac computers in a nice lab with a bunch of digital printers. Then we got the whole school to have small USB drives so they could actually bring their lives to and from school. And then we got digital cameras into the hands of the teachers and had training on how to use things like that. And I, I do believe in the three or four years I was there between myself and a technology committee we put together of parent volunteers, um, we really we brought that school out of the dark ages and into the modern time. That's, so that was great. That's unbelievable. I can think back to that starting <clears throat> probably in fifth grade. In fifth grade, I was, it was year 2000. So right then, like we had computer labs, they kind of popped up out of nowhere. And you're right. Like think then fast forward to eighth grade. So now it's 2003. We had not full classes, but aspects of classes teaching us how to search for information because Google was not Google like it is now. You type in whatever you want, you're going to find it and you can be kind of all over the map. Like you'll figure it out. Google will figure it out for you. Back then, you had to be very specific, you know, and the whole world wasn't on the internet yet. And I don't know if you remember like Ask Jeeves and, you know, Google wasn't the dominant one yet. So you, yeah, it was. You're yeah, right. you know, we had we had courses courses with the teachers on on how to find information online. Absolutely, yep. we had courses on what, how to print. You what know, a concept! Things. And uh, it's wild to know that you, I came in and people had di floppy disks, and when I came out, a couple of classrooms had whiteboards. You yeah. know, in, in just four years, and where that is, and today, uh, 15, 16 years down the road, they're still using whiteboards. You know, yep. which is they're good, great ones, smart boards, but yep. you know, got to get people to a place of modern technology. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so you go to Spain, um, which had to be unbelievable, very jealous. Uh, but what motivated you to want to come back and, and join your family's business? Because, you know, look, like family business isn't uh, always the prettiest, right? Like it isn't always the easiest thing to do. So what what was the motivation there? Yeah, so, you know, first, under you know, there was no family business. You know, there, there was my mom in her kitchen cooking some stuff. Um, when she called me the first time, I just laughed at it. And I, I did, I said, I said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I, said, I said, I love you to death. Um, I said, I don't know anything about soap. I don't know anything about business. I don't think I care about either. Um, <laughs> and my life here in Spain is phenomenal. And so no, thank you. <laughs> uh, the second time she called, you know, it was like, ma, you know, if this is something you want to do, you should do that, you know, and you are, you have been for four or five years now. Yeah, I, I see there's growth. I've came home uh, to visit here and there. I would go to a farmer's market and help her sell something. Um, I saw what that was, though. And that's that's, that's not for me to, to schlep a table to a, a hot market in a parking lot for the day and, you know, beg people to buy your things. I don't I, that's not me. Um, and, and it's not her, <laughs> you know. And, and so I said, that's not that's not us. Um, and I'm never going to Willie Loman. And uh, for those of you out there that know what that yep. means, if not read Death of a Salesman. Yep. And, yep. you know, uh, it, I didn't see that. Um, when I got the third contact, which was a, a letter from my stepfather saying, you know, um, 
your mother is asking you for help, one. And two, uh, I'm here, I'm on the ground, I'm helping her with this. And I, I see the promise. He, you know, he was a 60 year old lawyer at the time, a very successful in his practice and said, I, I thought what she was doing was a little goofy at first on the side and now I see what's happening. And people are loving this product and she could go somewhere with it, but she does need some mechanisms and she needs some help. And I, I, I think I ignored everything he said after your mom's asking for help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, you, what you, you can't, if your mother is asking your, your child for assistance, you can't say no. Yeah, uh, you just do and, it. And, and so I was like, you know, so what I thought was I'll put my life on hold here for a year. And um, yeah, know, go I'll, check it out. I'll go there. I will help her in every way I can. Yeah. And uh, because I, you know, I owe it to her and I want, I want to help my mother. Why not? So uh, I, I sold my apartment there and, and left um, and really did think in about a year. Or so I was going to come back. That was my plan. I thought maybe even six months if I was lucky. And uh, what happened was when I got home, mom was so submerged in creation of these products, um, both invention continually on a daily basis and making physically manufacturing by hand and with pots and spoons, what she was making as a product line. And uh, it was a few soap bars, shampoo bars, <clears throat> these little solid cakes that are, well, sorry about that. They're good. <laughs> we have a lot of guests with dogs. It, you okay. know, it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have a few uh, dachshunds, wiener dogs. So they're, they're yappy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what happened was I saw that she was submerged really in dealing with product creation and nobody was dealing with the mechanisms around that, which at the first were customer interaction. There was very little, you know, we were putting out two orders in a day and that was a huge deal and anybody would want order anything. Yeah. Um, but somebody had to, to be on that phone or, or answer an email and, and then someone had to sit down and deal with, with the shipping process. Um, yep. You know, that business organically started one day as it currently is today when, you know, somebody wrote an email to mom saying, I was Googling about solid shampoo bars and I, I saw yours, you know, maybe they were in New York or California, where can I buy it? You know, and her answer was, uh, mail me a check and I'll put one in an envelope. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, and here we are today, you know, with yes. this robust global internet business because of that, and, but there was no mechanism around it. And so when I, I saw that, you know, I, I put in a call to USPS and I, I said, you know, can I sit down with a representative and talk about a, setting up a shipping system for us and yada, 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 those things I realized had to be done. And so as, as I kind of looked around each day and showed up to my mom's house being like, okay, what's my job today? <laughs> you yep. know, it, it, it was those things. It was building all of the business mechanisms around an already phenomenal product that was there because that, that was what she really needed. When she said, I need help, I don't know if she knew what she needed, but it was clear she didn't need help making these products. She, yep. she had that down, was creating amazing things that people were, were loving and finding benefit from. And so the question is, what's next? How do those things get to the public? How does this business grow around so that people are asking for it, finding it, et cetera? And that, that began our journey, really. It's amazing. And I didn't leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you never left. It's amazing. I did, not, but, I did uh, not leave because I'll be honest, that very first or second customer interaction was mind blowing. You know, it's, uh, I was reading an email within my first week back from a woman whose daughter um, couldn't, what had a doctor's note 
to excuse herself from gym class at school from the portions where she had to take her shirt off. So if she had to go swimming or if they had to change into like a certain lacrosse uniform or something, anytime she would have to go into a dressing room and remove clothing, she was excused and she would just go to the library. And it's because her entire back was covered with terrible acne in, in this. It was just cystic and, and awful. And she was so embarrassed and it was unpleasant looking and et cetera. And she had gone to doctors and tried steroid creams and gotten shots and taken pills and every other thing that the dermatologists recommend. And now they, she had bought this, what at the time was, a, I think, a $5 bar from us, this bar made from neem oil and tea tree oil, which we still make today. It's our most popular bar that we sell. And this $5 bar, after using it for a couple of weeks, she sent us a photo of her daughter in a swimsuit. Wow. You know, and, and you, you tear up reading that. You know, mm -hmm. you've changed somebody's changed life. Changed somebody's life. Yeah, I'm yeah. just gonna say. And and when when you notice that, you know, um, the power of that, and that it was done with a, a handcrafted, simple, natural ingredient product that your mother made. There, there was a lot of power there for me. Yeah. You know, as someone yeah. who loves to interact with people and help people and be part of those types of things, here here was something magical happening. And so it took just a few of those you know, types of interactions at the table at the market or via phone or email uh, with someone calling about their hair and how it had never been like it currently is. And I said, wow, you know, uh, there's something here to get out to the public and there's yep. something here worth interacting and talking about uh, with, with the general populace because they don't have it. There's no access to it and it, it could help an awful lot of people from, from top to bottom. So, you know, so it, was worth, it was worth staying once that phase began. Yeah, of course. I mean, you 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 just hit on it, and in terms of one of the important stories and reasons. But what are other reasons that people need to start, you know, yesterday using organic based products on their skin and hair versus, mm -hmm. to your point, look, I don't want to, uh, you know, crap on the entire uh, dermatology business. <laughs> I still think they could, you, you know, they they do good things. You may have um, to go to one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you know what? What are the reasons or like benefits for going let's let's call it organic as a general you know title i guess sure i mean so there's one simple thing to think about no matter where on the spectrum you might lie with your political beliefs about something people do have to understand scientifically we we are simply a biological organism you know we, we're, we're made out of carbon and cells uh, like most other things on the planet that live and as complicated as our brains may want to be and our thoughts and our feelings and our souls may be, we are still made of this material here. And being made of an organic material, using human created chemicals, you only end up with an intersection that's dangerous. Our, our bodies, our systems, like the globe and its system and the other creatures that live on it, are not designed to interact with those substances. They, they don't exist as part of Earth's makeup. And all things on Earth are a, a biological piece of the Earth's ecosystem makeup. So we as humans have gotten so intelligent that we've been able to create substances that are not of this Earth. Yep. Sure, they're made from things found here originally, but we synthesize them in laboratories and scientific ways with machinery 
in, 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 I mean, some of these things, if I explain to you some of the simple stuff you have in your home and how it came about, you, you'd just be shocked. It's so complicated and so far from anything we have on the planet. And the processes are dangerous and the ingredients are dangerous and the end product is dangerous. And they're the things we have in our homes that we sit on and they're the things that we have that we eat and they're the things we have that we put on ourselves. They're dangerous for us when they're made out of these very synthetic and what we know are toxic chemicals. So the idea that you would eat or use on your body and skin, which is your biggest organ, it takes and absorbs everything you put on it into your body, those toxic chemicals, those man-made substances that are not of this earth and that are not meant to interact with our living bodies, that you would cover yourself in them. What, what do you think the result is really going to be you know, health-wise, scientifically? And we're seeing it now in what is a half century of very diseased humans um, because we've had a half century of toxic chemical poisoning with most of the things around us. Yep. So the easiest things to avoid, the quickest things to get to are the things you put in your mouth and on your body yep. because that's the quickest understanding of intersection. Yes. Getting in your car. Yeah. Sleeping on that pillow. Those aren't safe either. Those chemicals aren't good for you, but they are not literally going immediately into your body. <laughs> yep. Literally in. And so don't put things inside you that, that are man-made chemicals. And, and, and so we look at people and we try to remind them that in the daily process of putting on shampoo, putting on soap, using deodorant, brushing your teeth, washing your face, putting on makeup, using shaving cream, I could go on and on, you probably put 1,000 chemicals into your body on a simple daily basis just through your hygiene. And that I do the same hygiene you do. It makes me feel really great after because they're feel good products. And I, I'm not putting one, not one chemical <laughs> into my body, zero. And I'm doing all the things you're doing, shampooing and shaving and deodorant. And it all works great. It smells great. It looks great. But it, it's made of real, normal, organic material from this earth. Just like the difference between eating a carrot and chewing on some weird neon pink candy from a bag at, at the gas station. So where... <sighs> Because sometimes I'll admit it gets, it almost feels hopeless when another story comes out that this was contaminated and you shouldn't eat this brand. And now this is bad for you. And a new study shows this and, you know, blah, blah, down the line, right? It feels like my wife and I talk about all the time. Like we, we try our best. We go to Trader Joe's, we buy organic, we do the best we can in terms of just the food, you know, forget the, forget everything else in terms of shampoo and all that. But sometimes it feels like no matter what you do, you can't avoid everything. Right. Even to your point of like getting in your car or sleeping on a pillowcase, like is like, where do people go? Like, cause you're also facing Matt, the, the monster that is mass media and advertising of buy this soap by the right so like where should people go or where would you advise them to go to like try to like turn that part of their brain off and learn about not only you guys but just the industry as a whole of like shifting what you buy and and where you go and all that like what do you do what is step one 
It almost feels like stepping out of the matrix. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is it is hard because what you're actually asking is where does knowledge, factual knowledge yeah. and trust come from? Yeah. And, and that's a deep question. Uh, I would actually say it was a way less deep about five years ago. <laughs> yep, I agree with you. Uh, factual knowledge has gone down the toilet in modern America. Yeah. Um, and trust, you know, we, we, we couldn't, when you can't trust the political sphere or the business sphere, who do you trust? <laughs> you know, that because that's what we have to live under. Yep. So I, I, I have to be honest there. I think that's where you're really talking about a couple of things. One is small business. Mm-hmm. And two is local industry. You know, the, the industrial business economic mechanism of America is untrustworthy. It's why we have to have horrible regulation. And then it's why there are evil lobbyists fighting against the horrible regulation. Yep. That machine doesn't care about us. You can discuss the political machine all you want and whether it cares about us or not. But here we're talking about businesses. But in the way that America is structured, on the top are large corporations. Yep. Underneath that is our political sphere that is monetarily beholden to those corporations. Underneath that is smaller business. And then below that are the people. And so small business, being down where it is, has a very unique opportunity to not even have the ability to spread the misinformation or desire to do so that happens at the top level, um, but more so you have direct access to them. So you can hear their story. You can see their background. Yeah. You can vet them. How would you possibly vet PERT shampoo? You, you, don't, you don't know who makes it. Yeah. <laughs> and could you find out who makes it? Then you'd have to be vetting Cargill or Johnson & Johnson and God help you. So, yeah. you, you know, it, you can really find out who is actually behind this t-shirt or this burger or this yep. bar of soap and where, where, where were they born? Where did they get trained? And you could actually go talk to them. <laughs> and, yep. and it's that type of what we call consumer education that has been tossed out the window because companies do attempt very hard to blow smoke in everyone's face in order to get them to buy. And so they will be untrustworthy and they will be unfactual. Yep. And it is up to the consumer to attempt to find a source. And if the source is local or if the source is small, you can interact with them in a very direct way, have a meaningful relationship and find honesty, find factualness, at least to the best of, of to makes you feel good, you know? Yep. Yep. And, and so I think that's a real important piece of what we do in our interaction with the public. My website is 900 pages and 500 pages of that is simply information. We want you to come we want you to trust us. And then once you do, then you can learn so much from us. Yep. Um, and so there, there's something there to that. So you mentioned when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, when we met in person that you, the company does not employ one person for sales or marketing. Uh, you guys have grown solely based on product referrals, word of mouth. You know, if you're doing something like an event in person, things like that. Um, so it's kind of a perfect segue, like you're battling the, this, this multi-billion dollar industry that is advertising and marketing to convince people to buy. And you guys go the opposite. You say, we're not going to do it at all. Uh, how? 
how, well, how'd you guys? We want to be funny about it. You know, if, if, if the Cavs called me up and wanted to play basketball against me and a couple of my buddies, the only way for me to not lose that game is to not play it. <laughs> yeah, I, that's I the can't way win. to put it. Yeah. I can't win the game. Yeah. You know, there's no way. So you look at what it is and you say to yourself, I'm not going to participate in that. that. That's absurd. Yep. And you walk away from it and you go play a small pickup game in your buddy's backyard and you win you know, and now you're king of the universe that night and you feel yep. as good as had you gone and played the other game. If you were the, the Celtics and you were beating the Cavs, I felt as good that night as they would have felt, you know? Yep. So within, within our sphere, our goal is re-educate the public that we can possibly reach, make sure that they're learning and that they're engaging, and then they will become lifelong customers. And then yep. they will tell others that's how all things change. At some point, someone looked at someone and was like, you should wash your hands. You know, we're all dying of typhoid. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> we, we couldn't, they couldn't all just learn it, you know, and somehow. And so at some point you get something good, you get a nugget and you do it and you take it into yourself and you turn to the person next to you too, your kid, your friend, your, and you spread that knowledge. And that's how better eating and better living has changed over the last couple of decades small organic brands and farmers and people who want to do it right have no ability compared to McDonald's to try to get you to change your diet. Yep. And so it's, it's been people dying of, of health issues and people seeing the benefits of certain things that have gotten people now to not eat McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Like maybe people did in the seventies and eighties. Yep. Um, and, and, and so society slowly changes as information slowly spreads. We, we can't get out over the voice of the large companies, but we can do what we're doing very right and make sure it's about communication and education and not just selling the product. And then you're, you're changing hearts and minds slowly. Yep. And then yep. That, that's really what we can do. Yeah. And at the, at the end of the day, like the, the product is always the most important, right? There's always, you know, the marketing people will say, you know, you, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, right? So your marketing campaign could be the greatest most amazing campaign you've ever put together, email, social media, whatever it is. But if your product sucks, you know, what are we talking about? So it's like, as I'm hearing you say it, it sounds so simple. You know what I'm saying? Like, think about what you're saying. You're like, all right, we're not going to waste time on this. We're going to put all of our uh, effort and, and money and, and, and thought into developing a product and then the education and the experience for the customer and you've crushed it, right? Like that concept, if you just like removed it from the current world we're in is so basic. It's so, so simple, basic. right? What but, I like but to tell people is there's an analogy to be made with restaurants, you know, and it's a, it's an age long one. I was actually telling a story yesterday. I was in what is supposedly there's a few places that claim to be the oldest serving restaurant, but yeah, this place yeah. isn't even a restaurant. It's like, a, it's a cave in Austria near the Alps that has been supposedly serving drinks since the 500s, 500 AD. And so, yeah. you know, you think about restaurants, you know, what that means. And when you're a, a, a solid chef of any kind, or you open a, a restaurant like that, right? You can't get into the place. You know, you can't get a reservation on the weekend. You, you, there's a line out the door, et cetera, et cetera. And that can go on for years. And that place is never advertising to you. 
you're you're not going to open up the the, the this local scene magazine or something and have to see a big ad for for Michael Simon's Lola or whatever it is. He doesn't have to tell you about it. He doesn't have to bother. Yep. He, he's doing something of absolute passion and quality. It translates to something phenomenal. Anyone who gets it is like, oh, this is great. And so, that, you know, that's yep. what you've got. And that's how the world of a good chef works or, or an or artisan. And businesses don't think that way. They're like, they go the other way around. Okay, I'm, I'm going to, I have to make this dollar. And then they go backwards <laughs> to and they end up with a product or something. You know, it's, it's so, it's so shallow in what it is. But if you've got a real thing that you're passionate about and you do it of quality for a reason, then you, the public needs or wants that. And you, you don't have to worry so much about those mechanisms screaming and waving your arms about, look what I have, please take it. Yep. And we believe yep. that we've seen it over 20 years. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, we talked about a ton of things when we met a couple of weeks ago, but you, you've been involved in the Ohio political scene for, you know, multiple years now. Um, so a two-part question, first being, you know, 30 years ago, it pol politics used to be a no-no. You know, people legitimately would not talk about them and would be offended if you even asked, hey, who'd you vote for, right? So we've come a long way in terms of what is socially acceptable to even talk about. But first question is, how and why did you want to get involved in politics? Um, because it can be frustrating, to use one word. Uh, and then the, the second question is, almost similar to what I asked you a little while ago, like, what would you recommend to people that are not involved? Like, how should they get involved? Where should they start? Well, I, I got involved because I, I was shocked. Um, I lived growing up like most people do in their own bubble. And so I knew what I knew. Yep. Um, I grew up in Cuyahoga County you know, in Mayfield Heights. Um, and, you know, in Cuyahoga County, uh, recently it's gone anywhere between 78 and 81% uh, Democrat on, it, it's, on, on its voting. So I, I, and I had some members in my family who were older, my great uncles and my grandfather's brothers who were quite politically active and friends with senators. Uh, at the time I would go to a family dinner and Howard Metzenbaum would be there. That was a thing, you know. Um, and I saw pictures and heard stories of them marching uh, in Washington, uh, you know, marching with um, local leaders, you know, um, marching with Rabbi Lilliveld uh, and Martin Luther King. I mean, incredible stuff, you know, and I, I think I took it all for granted and assumed that like, you know, Americans are just lovely little social warriors. And yeah, that was, the, that was the norm. <laughs> you know, want, want to make sure that the world is good and everyone is safe and happy because we're doing well. And so all is all is great. Yep. I, I didn't understand greed uh, and corporate greed <laughs> yet fully. Uh, and so certainly not social conservatism, conservatism. So it was uh, when um, George Bush, you know, was elected the first time. And uh, you know, not much of it to me. Um, I, I don't whoever he was running against at the time as a Democrat was so wishy-washy that I couldn't even care. And, you know, so George Bush wins, lovely. You know, his dad had already been president. I thought- Was it Gore? Was it Al Gore? Maybe. Right? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it was the second time. Um, yeah, maybe. You're, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so 
when when he won, um, I thought it was, I can't remember, but it was, it was, no, I didn't care. I didn't think much of it, I'll be honest, at all. Um, what I didn't know was, was that an administration heavily steeped in corporate America and social conservatism was moving in to, to the White House. And I didn't realize what that was about to mean you know, for the world, not just America. Um, but all of a sudden, what I just assumed was the liberal direction that America always was generally heading. And I don't mean crazy liberal. I was by no means a, a strong leftist. <laughs> you know, I think I was a little bit of a centrist uh, on, yeah. most, on a lot of things, depending. More a little left on social issues, perhaps more right on fiscal issues. Um, and I, I saw what social conservatism on a large scale would do to America as a successful nation, as a free enterprise nation, it, it's, it's terrible for us. It's, it's the worst thing that could happen. It, it takes back the progress that we achieve each year with the free country that we are. And I thought, well, I thought, you know, I thought to myself, I thought this was in the past. You know, I, I thought we had moved past you know, talking about spending our time taking away people's rights to do things socially. Um, or having our own personal beliefs brought into the politics and affect what others do. Stuff like that was very surprising to me to hear. The mingling of religion and politics was very shocking to me. Yep. I, I assumed we were built on uh, the separation of those things. And as someone who was in a, a parochial school for some time, it was clearly hammered into our heads in my yep. Jewish school that, that religion and, and the country are separate entities. Uh, and that's important for yep. us to keep us all safe and that we, we treat that with a lot of respect and that we don't push our personal agenda in, in the, the country's politics. That's not something we do as a, as a religion. And I, I was terrified to see it happening, you know, um, with people who were very evangelical and very strong in their beliefs. At the same time, uh, things were being done overseas that were horrific, uh, invading sovereign countries you know, for oil protection <laughs> um, and, and things like that. The, our reaction to 9-11, which, you know, I, I, I will not belittle the event. It's horrific. But the amount of people who died on that day compared to the amount of people who die on sometimes a daily basis on, in, in places that are at war or what we've gone through in COVID this last, last couple of years. Yep. Uh, and, and so our reaction to that was so severe and so out of hand for a democratic nation, um, I, I didn't know what was happening. And I, I was now seeing corporate greed and the, the, the war machine and the money that makes and how that intertwines sometimes with your beliefs and this awful thing uh, that I never knew could happen in my country. And I was willing to work uh, within it and against it to a point, knowing that these are four-year terms and that there's not a chance with what we were seeing happening in, in Iraq and these other things that, that this clearly unqualified individual and some of the very evil people behind him were going to be elected again. And they were. <laughs> uh, and that was my, my foray into politics, but sadly, in, in, in the worst of ways, I shut down and I ran away. You know, when, when he was elected the second time, within eight weeks, I left the country. I decided this wasn't my place anymore, that I didn't know these people, because if this country could elect that administration a second time, 
something had gone terribly wrong. This was not the administration of his father. This was not the Reagan administration. This was something very different. Um, and it certainly wasn't the very successful Clinton administration of eight years. So I don't know what it was, but it was it was a crap show. I'm trying not to swear on the podcast. Yeah, and, you can uh, swear. It's all right. Oh, good, because it was a total shit show. And <laughs> it, it scared me. And, uh, and it hurt me as an American. And so I left just looking to get away, not even realizing I would find something so much better. And what I found was the democratic free socialism of Europe, which had all the great ideals of our free capitalism. There's not one thing there that hinders your free capitalism. I, I think there's quite a, um, a misnomer here that that's, that's a thing. It's not. Um, and despite having all the free capitalism, they're able to understand that their government is there to help take care of the people and that we're all meant to work in a basic cooperative just to make sure that we're healthy, wealthy, and educated. And if we can all be in that point, look how good we all are. And I saw that. And sure, not everyone's perfect in all those countries or those models, but every one of them strives to that goal. No one's fighting against that goal. And when they do, they lose. Yep. <laughs> and, and so I was shocked to go and see the free healthcare and the free education through college and, and the clean city streets and the police force that wasn't an aggressive police force, it was there to protect and to serve and was part of the communities. And all of these things that were what I thought these great American ideals. And I realized that we, we were failing at so many of them epically in our refusal to allow a little bit of democratic socialism, you know, allowing the government to participate in our welfare. Uh, we're, we have to be so avidly against it in a revolutionary American style way that we won't let ourselves succeed as a people. Uh, and then, then we give ourselves up then to the only mechanism that can be there, which if it's not politics, it's corporate, it's business, big business. And so when I was in Europe, I saw there was another way. And in those three years being there, I'll be honest, one of the things that allowed me to be able to say, okay, I'm going to come back is the timing of those calls from mom coincided with the fact that that, that term was going to end within a year of me coming home. Yep. And when I came home in the fall of 2007, I, I was able to spend 12 months now working on a campaign for a young, bright, new fellow named Barack Obama that just empowered and impassioned me again about what America could be. And, you know, I, that moment is the moment where I think I, I became involved in politics and also the moment that I was pushed over to the side of being what I now consider myself a Democrat. You know, I, I was I was a centrist. I was perhaps a libertarian <laughs> to a point uh, in a way. Um, I didn't like limited government. And I certainly didn't like the way that the fiscal structure was. I thought it was a bit um, heavy handed towards business in general. And I think there are a lot of things we could do as businesses to free ourselves from the government to create a better economic structure. But I've had to lose a lot of that. You know, it's, it, these days, uh, sides have been chosen. And so when I came back and got involved in that campaign, I started to see a lot of what was happening as there's this side and there's that side. And there's now folks working on a social agenda that isn't one I can stand behind. They've left the political agenda of traditional conservatism as far as fiscal politics behind. And it's now become about big business and social politics. And uh, I, I don't like either of those. <laughs> so do you, do you think... Part, do you think our system present day 2022 is working like it needs to? And 
you know, look, it's this is going to be a political episode, so that's fine. But right now, what's happening in the Supreme Court with the abortion bill, Roe v. Wade, you know, 70 percent of the country doesn't support what's happening. And yet it's going to happen. Well, we, it's probably going to happen. So doesn't that define a broken system? Yeah, the system is broken. And I I can I personally, uh, you know, boil it down to only one thing, and that is the Electoral College. Oh, okay. I, I went, my brain went money and yeah, money, no, I agree. Money I is agree. money. Money is money. And that's fine. You know, I, I've worked very heavily actually with our Senator here in, in our great Senator of Ohio, Sherrod Brown, um, yeah. who has made it really singular of, of his, his office to fight against the influx of money into politics because it ruins the game. Absolutely ruins the game. If we could stop it tomorrow, it would make a difference, but it could be circumvented with the change of the, the electoral college and it, it it almost does it wouldn't matter because corporate money can't affect a singular vote no nope. and a singular vote of a democratic people is always always going to be the strongest form of democracy yep. there's no way you can get around 10 people in a room and there being any more straight way to democracy than letting each one of those 10 people have a say a vote a yay or nay vote you can come up with any system you want. It will never be as honest as each person getting a say. That's what that group of people would say. That's your answer. So the American people choose one thing on abortion, sure. But the way the Electoral College is structured, our representative democracy no longer is representative of the population of America. The population of America is not skewed white. It is not skewed modern day male, cis, Christian. And it is a different makeup than what the traditional structure of America has been. And the system we have takes that future shift into account by understanding back then urban cities and populations would always be strong compared to small, rural, empty areas. I look at it and say, uh-huh. So you're saying more people have more say than less people? And I, <laughs> I, I, I can't see how we in 2022 tolerate any longer the fact that we have an unrepresentative, imbalanced, unfair, non-direct democracy where my vote is not my vote. I vote for Hillary Clinton. My vote goes to Donald Trump. That's why what you asked is happening. The Electoral College has, has destroyed our modern democratic system and it cannot be fixed until that goes away because it permanently ensures that the centers of actual population of our country where the people are, do not have any more say. And that, that's not democracy. Why and that's where the progress is. That's where higher education is. That's where all of that is. And so if we aren't giving progress any weight, population of the growing people any weight compared to things like farmland that, that does not change, we, we have real problems. Why do you think it is, this is going to be a tough question to even get out, but why do you think it is we, and we pick and choose when we want to go back to the constitution, uh, you know, depending on what you're arguing for. But why can't we get past the concept of something that was written hundreds of years ago 
needs to be updated daily, if not weekly, monthly, yearly. You know what I mean? Like, you want why? To have a discussion about politics, or do you want to have a discussion about religion? Uh, because yeah. now you're talking about a core concept, you know, where people's entire lives today are dictated by a, a single writing of four thousand years ago. Yeah, you know that where you know that its validity to our modern lives can be nil. Yep. Its validity should be in question, but its validity to our modern lives, at least. And, and so it, that's very complicated. And so you're looking at these doctrines of 300 years ago and you say to ourselves, they have no validity to our modern life. No. From top to bottom. Are there and wouldn't you, wouldn't you. Does it work? Sure. And pieces of it that don't. Sure. And that's pretty much coincidence at this far down the road that some of yeah. it actually works quite well in, in certain circumstances. Some of it, absolutely not. And, and whereas we update code, fire code every decade, you have you know, to. We're, we're, we're not willing to understand the flexibility of, of some of these documents. And I, I say this to religious communities when I work with them and teach some of these documents, you know, that, that they're meant to be flexible and breathing if you want to hold them to be true. If you want to think of it as this very fixed thing, it's like a fable or anything else. You know, but if, it, if it's real truth, reality, then it grows, it changes, it lives with us as people. And as we understand and as we live, it does with us, not the other way around. We cannot conform ourselves to something of the way past. That, that, that should never work. And we see that now with the Second Amendment and our lives, how it translates in modern society today. But what's happening with people and the control that a group like the NRA gets because of something like that, that was not intended for that. It's pretty specific what it was for. And we don't have those mechanisms. We're not forming militias of the state. We're not holding Negro slaves down. And we're certainly not fighting against our government. And so uh, understanding that, if you have any knowledge of the Constitution and why the things are written as they are, those things don't exist. And so why would we then take the empty hollowness of these words and put them on something that doesn't exist. You know, it's like keeping a dietary law that a Jew or a Muslim might, might have, because in the desert where they did live a thousand two years ago, it had to be done for safety or you would probably die. But it doesn't apply today. We have safe food. <laughs> and, and so it's different. But that's very hard to let go of because these things, they are holy. You know, the Constitution is holy and the Bible is holy, and you, you can hold on to them as strongly as you can, and people will, will die and fight and everything for them. And they have in the past, they've died for them. Uh, and that, that means something. And it's probable that we as Americans wouldn't have the free life today had someone not created a constitution and people not fought and died for it. That doesn't mean that it's not meant to be a living, breathing document, that we hold just as holy, you know, more so because it, it moves with us. You know? We always debate it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this for about three hours. So I will uh, try to wrap up with this. I, I depends on the day. It depends on how much news I consume uh, in terms of my outlook on the, you know, the rest of next 10 years and the rest of my life. Um, I will say if you've spent any time around Gen Z, uh, it's very promising. Um, and that is not a political statement. That's a that's a, cause I look, I I'm similar to you, right? I'm a centrist. 
Uh, I am a registered independent. We had this conversation when we met, like I'm a registered independent. And yet when I go to vote, I had to pick a team. That's absurd. I don't want to do that. Um, so I think in well, 40... Like, also, can you can be assured that if the Electoral College were to disappear tomorrow, oh. you would not have to pick team A and team B. We, we could have eight. We could have eight teams, exactly. which we should have. The current system that we have does ensure at the moment this, this dual political party system that no matter what side you're on, extreme left, extreme right, or more or less centrist, I think almost every American would like to see the system we have go away and change. We all kind of agree on that. And so since most everyone does, that's our mechanism to it. You know, that electoral college change means you have a vote, I have a vote, and we have a vote. And guess what? We're going to vote for that other party that just came up that we actually agree with more than than just A or B. C and D actually make some sense too to people. So there's opportunity out there, but it takes major shift like that. Oh, okay. Sam, uh, we have one fun question to end the episode. Um, and well, first of all, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Um, Thanks for listening and asking we, such great questions. We, uh, we should do this in person. Um, and for the listeners that are uh, watching this, uh, Sam has a fantastic uh, selection behind him of all sorts. I mean, I'm trying to, is that a Weller? I mean, all sorts of alcohol behind there. Um, so anyway, uh, You've lived in Cleveland for a total of what, 15 plus years? Oh, more than that. Chagrin, Cleveland, kind of back and forth, correct? Yeah, yeah. And for, for most of my, my life, if you take out the time that I, I was in Columbus and I was in Spain, you know, I've been out of Cleveland for probably a total of maybe eight or nine years of my 45. So, so, so this is going to be a good answer. So if you only had one, if you can't choose one, you can choose two, but best Cleveland restaurants or your most frequented, or, uh, you know, your go-to breakfast spot, you know, whatever, whatever you want to highlight. Um, we always like to highlight a, a, a Cleveland uh, staple. So what, uh, what do you got for us? Well, here's what I'll say. Every, everybody needs a heart. And, you know, the heart of any, of any city is its downtown area. But all those hearts have the different compartments, right? And you've got the, the main aorta. And right now, the main aorta here is Ohio City. And when you want to drill that down, the very bullseye of Ohio City is a little neighborhood called Hingetown. That's where all great things are happening. It's probably the best two blocks in the state, Hingetown. And um, there's an awesome project that I'm going to name drop now called City Goods that's going to be opening there in the end of August. That's going to have an awesome cocktail bar and 24 small little Cleveland businesses all opening in little shops and airplane hangars. So come check that out. I'm going to have a shop in there with Chagrin Valley. Um, but right there on that block are the two best people, I think, doing food in the city. Um, I think Cleveland's best chef is Doug Katz. And uh, sadly, because of the pandemic, he closed what I think was the best restaurant in Cleveland. It was called Fire. It was his flagship restaurant. But he reopened a brand new flagship restaurant just a week ago. Or it's wow. called Amba, A-M-B-A, Amba. And it's Indian Mediterranean uh, Middle Eastern fusion. And it's just incredible. The atmosphere, it might be the sexiest room in Cleveland. And the food is just a die for the cocktails. The whole experience is incredible. So Amba is special. And his other small restaurant at the Cedarly area, Slug, um, is phenomenal. But the other uh, guy, his name is Jeremy Umansky, and he has a small deli called Larder, L-A-R-D-E-R. Uh, he's gotten a lot of national notoriety. He's only been open two years. He's a 
just younger than me. I've known him since he was younger. And uh, he opened a old world traditional European style deli, but with all modern techniques. He's a koji expert. He does fermenting and he's a forager. And it's just a small deli, but they're, they're doing wizardry in there. Like modern hipster wizardry cuisine type stuff. So check out Jeremy Yamansky's Larder and Doug Katz's Amba. They're both in Hingetown and come visit the City Goods Project in August when it opens. Man, the deli, the concept of the deli, I miss so much. Columbus has zero. It has a zero deli. Well, that's not. Katzinger's. Katzinger's. Katzinger's Wario's does a good job. Like, there are a handful. but yeah, it's, not, it's nothing like this. Yeah, so, so I would say, um, this may get me in trouble with some Columbus people. I, I think Columbus is the best city in Ohio. I don't, I don't even think it's close in terms of the food. I think Cleveland has the best food. Now, again, look, a Cleveland person is going to say Cleveland. A Columbus person is going to say Columbus. A Cincinnati person is going to say Cincinnati. So I get it. But the food is not close. The pizza is better in Cleveland. Uh, the, every, all the food I've had. So many places and so many categories that are just yes. there. I don't I even think it's a lot. Close. I eat a lot in Cleveland. It really does have great food because it, it we does. Have that your sleeves entrepreneur kind of culture. And chefs yep. come out of that. So yep. if someone wants to go and get a Japanese roto, or they're like, oh, I'm importing this pizza oven from Venice. And, and, and then, you know, this is what happens here in Cleveland. People really, they, they do these great jobs of executing stuff. And there's a lot of passionate chefs around. So we get great food here. We're quite yep. lucky. 100%. Awesome. Well, Sam, listen, we appreciate it, man. Um, you know, go have a drink of something behind you. Enjoy the rest of the night. <laughs> and uh, we'll have you on again soon. And uh, we will definitely check out City Goods in August. Um, Cool. Thank you. Yeah, again. we'll come on next. We'll talk about that. That's a whole different entrepreneurial adventure. So. Yeah, done deal. Awesome. Sam, thank you. Thanks, talk to Paul. you soon. Appreciate you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.